You are listening to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Wine-Banks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations with experts on various issues facing our country today. This is Victor Shi. I'm an incoming freshman at UCLA, and I'm also the youngest Biden delegate here in Illinois. Jill, do you want to give our um, audience a brief introduction about who you are? Sure. Uh, I'm Jill Wine-Banks. I was a Watergate prosecutor. I was general counsel of the Army. I was head of the American Bar Association. And I am now the author of The Watergate Girl, a memoir of my years during Watergate, and uh, an MSNBC legal analyst. As always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. Today, we cannot be more excited to be talking with Professor Lawrence Lessig about the Electoral College, his recent faithless elector Supreme Court case, and finally, the high level of polarization we find ourselves witnessing in our country today. Professor Lessig is a Royal Furman Professor of Law and Leadership at Harvard Law School. Professor Lessig is the founder of Equal Citizens, an organization for which I'm honored to be a fellow for. A founding board member of Creative Commons, Professor Lessig has focused much of his career on law and technology, especially as it affects copyrights, and currently addresses institutional corruption, especially as it affects democracy. He's also the author of his new book, They Don't Represent Us, Reclaiming Our Democracy. So thank you so much, Professor Lessig, for being here. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. So we have a lot to get into. So with that, I'll hand it off to Jill to kick off our conversation today. So we're going to try to focus today um, a lot on your recent Supreme Court argument. Um, I got to argue when I was Deputy Attorney General of Illinois in the Supreme Court. And so I know the excitement of that moment. Um, and uh, your case was of much more consequence than ours and had a real point to it. Um, but just so that we make sure that our full audience understands what the case was about, um, I think we need to talk about the Electoral College and why it came to be, why it's in the Constitution. Um, so maybe you could lay some foundation for what the framers had in mind by creating an Electoral College. Well, I think it's important to remember that the framers had no clear precedent to base the selection of a national executive upon. I mean, we were a young uh, republic against a background of not many other such large republics. And so they didn't really have a sense of what they were going to do to select the president. And indeed, if you imagine them adopting what many of them called for, which was a national popular vote, um, it would be hard to imagine how in 1791 you could have conducted a national campaign. It took four months to get information from one side of the country to another. And so if you imagine a campaign where, where they were trying to persuade ordinary people to vote one way or the other, it's not clear that the people would even understand who the candidates were or what the issues were by the time they decided. So this led the framers to think about a different system, one that would have the electors not be directly dependent on the states, or directly dependent on Congress, but instead have an opportunity to reflect on what the people have expressed through their own elections and also what the legislature might want through their selection um, in a choice for the president. So that's what led to the selection of this weird intermediate institution called the Electoral College to actually vote to choose who the president would be. Mm -hmm. So it was really in part a lack of communications ability um, we didn't have national newspapers, we didn't have radio or television, and travel from one 
place to another was um, very time consuming. So yes. we needed something. And the assumption I assume was that the electors would be somehow educated people who had access to information. That certainly was the assumption of people who praised the institution, like mm -hmm. uh, Hamilton. Um, you know, the image that Hamilton had was that electors would get together in their state capitals. Um, they would not gather in one location, and that was to avoid the, the, the risk of cabal or corruption. They would be separated across the country, and they all had to vote on exactly the same day. And again, taking advantage of the crudeness of the technology, what that meant is it would be hard to coordinate or to conspire across the country in the selection of a particular president. But Hamilton imagined they would sit within their um, group and they would uh, deliberate about who should be president. And that deliberation would you know, go based on who was qualified or who was um, highly qualified or who the people in their state might support. Mm -hmm. And so I understand that there was a pretty significant election in 1796 between Adams and Jefferson in terms of the introduction of political parties. So I guess for our audience listening today who may not be aware of the 1796 election, why was that election so significant regarding, I guess, the coming about of Electoral College? Yeah, so uh, it is, I think, one of the most important elections for the Electoral College mm -hmm. because, you know, the framers created the Constitution never expecting there would be political parties. They expected their presidents would be people like Washington, people who were uh, universally um, admired within the country, the kind of natural father figures, and it was at that time just father figures for the nation. But very quickly, the nation discovered that there was not going to be a democracy without parties. And in the 1796 election, we had the first really clear and crisp contest between two parties, the party um, that would represent Adams, what we call the Federalist Party, and what we would come to call the Republican or Democratic Republican Party for Jefferson. And Jefferson and Adams uh, competed, um, and uh, Adams prevailed. Um, and Adams prevailed, uh, meaning, which meant that Jefferson had to serve as Adams vice president. But in the election um, for, uh, for, uh, in, that, um, in that contest, um, the Electoral College in Pennsylvania had a weird in a had a weird conflict because the state of Pennsylvania had set the, the time for choosing the electors too soon after their statewide election. And so what happened is they didn't even have the votes counted by the time they needed to pick who the electors would be. And so the governor certified a body of electors, assuming that there would be at least three, I'm sorry, two electors representing Adams. But it turned out when the votes were counted that Adams had not won any electors, that instead all of the electors, all 15 electors should have been for Jefferson. So one of the electors who had been picked for Adams, Samuel Miles, when he came to cast his vote, he said, well, I know I'm a Federalist elector, I'm supposed to support Adams, but I'm actually gonna vote for Jefferson. And he voted for Jefferson and it created something of an outrage because people said, you know, we. Uh, there's one paper published an article that said, we didn't pick you to think, we picked you to act. And they thought he should have acted to support the Federalist, even though the Federalist hadn't won the state election. But that created a pretty clear signal um, of what seemed to me was clear in the text of the Constitution, that electors were in fact free to make a judgment about who they would support. Or, uh, and that judgment was in the end, ultimately independent 
of either how the people had voted or how the legislature had selected them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So basically there was nothing in the constitution that bound the electors to a candidate. They were free thinkers at the inception. Not uh, just that that changed in 1796. Not just that there was nothing that bound them to that. In our view, it was pretty clear in the text of the Constitution that they were not bound because the text of the Constitution calls them electors. And they say that the electors are to count, quote, cast, quote, their vote. Well, the Constitution speaks of electors in one other context. They speak of, in the context of Article I, um, what we could think of as congressional electors, meaning the people who select Congress people. And congressional electors are who we call just voters. Now, nobody would today think that the state of Massachusetts has the power to tell voters that they have to vote Democratic, even though many members of the state legislature in Massachusetts would love it if they could say everybody has to vote Democratic. <laughs> nobody thinks they have that power because the idea of an elector, uh, as Webster defined it, somebody who has the right of choice, is somebody who has the right to choose one way or another. And of course, they can pledge one way or another. They can promise how they're going to vote. But in the end, those promises have never in our history been enforceable. There have been promises of conscience. And that promise of conscience is something that in the end, somebody always had the right to deviate from. Mm -hmm. But electors are selected by not the voters. Is that correct? You don't vote for an elector. Someone well, else, the government does. That's right. I mean, it depends on the states and it depends on when we're talking about. Early on, um, in many states, the names of the electors would be listed and their affiliation with one party or another would be indicated as well, or one candidate or another. But now in, in every, practically every state, all but five states, the electors don't even appear on the ballots. Instead, um, the ballots say your vote for a candidate will be the selection of a slate of electors for that candidate. In the state of Pennsylvania, it's the candidates themselves who select the electors. But in every other state, it's basically the political party mm -hmm. that selects the electors who will there then represent um, their candidate um, if their candidate happens to prevail in the state election. Okay, so taking us to today, we have an educated and informed public, um, or at least they have access to information, and they have it simultaneously with the uh, announcement of it. We have live television coverage of anything the candidates say so that people can see it. We have uh, news coverage that is nationwide. So is there any argument for maintaining the Electoral College with this arcane set of rules where voters think they are actually voting for the president, but they aren't? Is, is there any reason to argue for its continuation? I think practically no one today would say that if we were setting up a system for selecting the president, even one that had something like the Electoral College, where each state got a certain number of votes, that we would set up a system where we would vest in individuals this kind of discretion. I think that idea is an anachronism. It's an idea from the 18th century. Right. Um, and so we weren't arguing about what we thought people would prefer or what even I individually would support. We were arguing about what the Constitution actually established. What were the rules given to us by the Constitution? And my own view is, um, you know, it's a good job for the courts to articulate what those rules are, and then for the people to decide whether those are the rules we want to live under. And in this case, you know, we brought this case originally 
primarily because we thought it was critically important the court decide this question outside of the context of an actual election. It would be a disaster if in the middle of a real election, um, the court had to decide whether electors were free or not, and their decision would choose one elector or another. So we, you know, we thought it was important to decide it independent of an election, and we achieved that. But we also thought, however the court decides it, it will help trigger a debate about what the Electoral College is or what it should be. If the court decided, as we thought the Constitution required, that electors were free, we thought that would trigger very quickly a national debate about whether we wanted to keep this institution that basically vested in these individuals this extraordinary discretion. But even if the court decided against us, which of course it did, uh, in the end, we would say um, uh, that decision would lead many people to say, well, how is it we have such an institution in our republic? It makes no sense. Um, the Boston Globe's editorial page said, the Supreme Court makes it official. The Electoral College is an anachronism. And that would also trigger a debate to lead people to say, is this institution an institution we want to keep? Let me just go back a step because we may be ahead of our listeners and describe what the case you're talking about is, which is Baca and Chafalo, um, who were two electors from two different states um, who wanted to be and were uh, voted their conscience, uh, not in accordance with the popular vote of their state. Um, and but before you tell us a little bit more about that Supreme Court case that you brought, um, just to clarify, um, the number of electors is set by, um, is it set by the Constitution or it's set by Congress? Um, well, indirectly by the Constitution. The Constitution says you get one elector for every congressperson plus right. two electors for the senators. Now, of course, Congress can increase the number of Congress people if it wants which would increase the number of electors, but given the way it is right now, there are 538 electors. Okay, and is every state a winner take all? So that if the vote is 51-49, it's still 100% go to the 51% winner, is that correct? That's an incredibly important question. Um, all but two states are winner take all. Um, and in my own view, that is the most important distorting effect of the Electoral College. Because what that means is the only states that matter are the so-called swing states. In 2016, 14 states saw 99% of campaign spending, which means the candidates cared about those 14 states a lot, but they didn't care much at all about the other, um, it's not just 36 uh, states, it's 37 because the District of Columbia is counted in that. And so that dynamic is produced by winner-take-all. And winner-take-all is not in the Constitution. It's just the state's decision to choose a slate of electors based on who happened to win the, the most votes in their state. So um, let's talk about your case, and then we'll talk about what are some solutions to the problems that are raised by it. But if you could give you know, maybe just a couple sentences that describe why you brought the case and what it involved and what the decision was. Then everybody will be on a playing field that's the same and can understand the conversation going forward about the problems. Sure, so in, in our cases, there were two. Um, we were representing electors who in 2016 had tried to vote contrary to how they were pledged. These were Democratic electors. But after the election, and after it was clear Hillary Clinton was not going to be chosen by the Electoral College, even though she had won the popular vote, 
these electors tried to work with Republican electors to vote for a candidate other than Donald Trump and thereby give the House of Representatives a chance to decide who should be president, Donald Trump, this third candidate uh, Republican, somebody like John Kasich, or potentially Hillary Clinton. But they believed that um, it would certainly not be Hillary Clinton. And so they wanted the House to have this choice. Now, that's because if no person gets a majority vote in the Electoral College, then the decision goes to the House of Representatives. And so their belief was that if they could get 37 Republicans to join them, um, they could move the decision from the Electoral College to the House of Representatives, and the House of Representatives could then decide who should be president. So they, they were acting on this nonpartisan motive, a motive that was about trying to make sure that the winner of the popular vote um, was not ignored in this process, and that if they were not going to select her, we should at least select somebody who was closer to that position than Donald Trump had been. Um, so in Washington state, three of those electors voted contrary to the pledge, and they were fined under a law that Washington had at the time that said anybody who votes contrary to how they were pledged um, has to pay a $1,000 fine. In Washington, in Colorado, the elector we represented, Michael Baca, plus two other electors, had tried to vote for somebody other than Hillary Clinton. Michael Baca was just uh, uh, um, fired from his job after he cast his vote for um, somebody other than Hillary Clinton, and somebody replaced him, and that replacement elector then cast their vote for Hillary Clinton. So we were trying to set up the question whether the discretion they were exercising was in fact a discretion which the Constitution vested in them, or whether they had to vote as they were told by the, um, by the state law. And by the voters of the state. Right, but, but notice that, you know, if you ask the voters of Washington, given Donald Trump is going to presumptively win the Electoral College, should the electors in Washington vote for someone other than Hillary Clinton to at least create the chance that Donald Trump would not be elected president. We think that 90% of them would have said, hell yes. I mean, their first choice was Hillary Clinton, obviously. But if it's clear she wasn't going to be president, the view of the electors was that most of the voters who had supported Hillary Clinton would at least support somebody other than Donald Trump. So the question of whether they were following the will of the people is more complicated. And that's one of the reasons we thought the discretion needs to be a discretion that is ultimately exercised by humans rather than by some law that forced one to vote one way or the other. So obviously you lost that decision. And I think Victor has one more question yeah. before we talk about, given where we are now, what are the solutions? What are the mm -hmm. options for Americans who I think will see through this decision how unfair the Electoral College is? We have obviously had two elections in which the popular vote winner was not the Electoral College winner, uh, Hillary Clinton and Al Gore. And so let's, um, let's go to Victor's yeah. question and then, then we'll go to that. Yeah, so I mean, in the Faithful Selector's decision, um, Elena Kagan ended her opinion by stating, you know, we the people rule, which effectively I think confirms that she and the other justices wanna see the Electoral College reformed in some way. So because you've done so much with the Electoral College issue, um, broadly speaking, what do you think is the best way to reform the Electoral College and what strategies would you harness to do so? Well, you know, we have to think 
distinctly about what's the best solution or what's the solution that each of us individually would want. Mm -hmm. And then what's the solution that we can realistically expect out of a very big, diverse nation that has mm -hmm. very vested interest in one way of doing it or another. So, mm -hmm. you know, if you ask me what I would devise if I were writing the constitution today, I would, you know, embrace national popular vote. I would embrace a system that gave everybody a fundamental right to vote, which we don't have right now. And, uh, and uh, the right to exercise that vote to select the president of the United States. But to get to that solution, you either have to adopt the National Popular Vote Compact, which is a complicated but important alternative to amending the Constitution that we can talk about if you'd like, or we have to amend the Constitution. And the thing about an amendment to the, to the Constitution is that it requires 38 votes. So the question is, what is the reform that gets us the best electoral college or the best system for selecting the president that we can achieve that could actually get 38 states to support it. And most people look at that question, they think there's nothing that could actually unite 38 states at least. But I think that's a mistake. And the mistake is seen, if you just think about the point we were making before about um, winner take all. Because if you recognize that a very small number of states actually benefit from winner take all. In 2016, it was 14 states. In 2020, it could be as little as nine states will matter as swing states in this election. Um, that means that the vast majority of states, if it's just nine, 41 states, are actually disadvantaged by winner take all. And if you said, instead of winner take all, let's have a system where we allocate the electoral votes proportionally at a fractional level. So if you get 45% of the vote in Montana, you get 45% of three votes. Um, then that allocation would mean that it's not just the swing states that matter to presidential candidates, it's every state. And if every state mattered to presidential candidates, we wouldn't have this weird system where the presidents bend over backwards to make people in just 14 states or nine states happy. We'd have a system where the president actually tried to represent everybody um, everybody in the nation. Now, not technically equally, because it still would be small states would have more power per uh, voter than large states. But the opportunity right now is that if you look at the bottom 10 states, they are perfectly divided between Republican and Democratic states. So uh, there are five, the bottom 10 states, there are five red states, there are five blue states. So even though it would be benefiting small states better, more than big states, it wouldn't be benefiting one party over another. And so my view is that the best ultimate amendment, the best ultimate change, would be one that doesn't try to throw out the whole institution, but instead one that says, let's keep the basic federalist structure, let's keep the basic allocation of votes, uh, uh, the way the electoral college votes are allocated, but let's just make sure that the electoral votes are divided fractionally and proportionally so that it doesn't distort the process of selecting the president and the president can be selected to represent all of America together. So do you think that the small states that currently um, disproportionately benefit from the current system and have resulted in the president not being the popular vote winner would agree to that? And also please do um, discuss because the uh, interstate compact is another way of avoiding a constitutional amendment, but changing the results of the electoral college um, 
and controlling it in a way that would reflect uh, more perfectly the uh, popular vote. So let's, let's talk about one, whether it's practical to think that small states, even though they're equally divided, blue and red, um, would agree to this uh, proportional voting. Let's talk about how, how realistic that is and then talk about whether this alternative interstate compact, describe what it is and whether it could be passed. Yeah, so the important thing to realize is that though everybody thinks small states actually benefit under the current system, they don't actually benefit under the current system. The states that benefit under the current system are swing states. States like Florida or Michigan or Pennsylvania or maybe Ohio, Wisconsin. I mean, there are a couple states which happen to be small states which are also swing states. New Hampshire is a small state, that's a swing state. Uh, Iowa is not a small state geographically, but population-wise is a small state that happens to be a swing state. But what makes somebody a swing state is not that you're a small state, it's that the division between the Republicans and the Democrats is very tight. So the point to recognize for small states like Wyoming, or um, even a state like Kentucky or Utah, is that the system right now doesn't benefit you, it benefits Florida, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and the other big swing states. So, so I think that there's a very significant probability if we could get people to focus on the reality of how the existing system works, that many of these small states would say, this is a complete perversion of a system for selecting the president. And indeed, in 1968, 69, there was a lawsuit brought in the Supreme Court to challenge the winner-take-all system by the state of Delaware. Because the state wow. of Delaware said, you know, we're the quintessential small states, but we don't benefit from this system. Right. The states that benefit from the system are these, what we would call swing states. So yes, I think that they would, could be brought around to recognizing why they'd be better off with this alternative. And, and, and the objective, um, you know, that we, we're beginning at Equal Citizens right. is to begin to have a kind of crowdsourced process to bring thousands of people into a conversation that brings them to, to this point of recognizing that in fact there is an amendment that would benefit the vast majority of America, 80% of America um, would be better off, I think, under this amendment than the existing system. Um, and that that recognition might help drive the political movement in many states to demand that Congress propose this amendment. Now, mm -hmm. you're right, the, the most likely fix to the existing inequalities of the Electoral College that's on the table right now is something called the National Popular Vote Compact. And what that is, is a very clever, you could think of it as a hack around the original presumptions or expectations about how the Electoral College works. What the compact says is, when states representing the majority of electoral votes, so that means when states representing 270 electoral votes mm -hmm. join the compact, they promise to select as their slate of electors the, the electors representing the winner of the national popular vote, regardless of who happened to win the popular vote in their state. So California is a member of the National Popular Vote Compact. Yeah. California all the time votes, uh, votes Democratic. It's a state's ignored by both parties. So there's no reason to vote to, to try to persuade California because even though there are many Republicans in California, you know that the state's gonna vote Democratic. But what California has promised 
under the National Popular Vote Compact is that if 270 electors, uh, states representing 270 electors agree, then they'll cast their votes for whoever wins the national popular vote, even if that person hasn't won California. So in this election, if this election were in play, if it were operating for this election, which it won't be, but if it were, if Donald Trump won the national popular vote, but uh, Joe Biden won California overwhelmingly, what California has promised is that it would allocate its electors to Donald Trump because he's the winner of the national popular vote. Now this movement has been supported by Republicans and Democrats because for many years people have thought it should be the winner of the national popular vote. But increasingly it's perceived by Republicans as a move against Republicans. And so there's been a very uh, strong contest in, in, by some people, I think it's a mistake by them, but by some people to stop the national popular vote compact from coming into force. In Colorado in this election, in this election cycle, there'll be a referendum about whether Colorado should withdraw from the National Popular Vote Compact because many people in that state think that it doesn't make sense for Colorado to, to throw their votes for the winner of the popular vote. They should throw their votes for the winner of the votes in Colorado. So we'll see. If Colorado backs away from the National Popular Vote Compact, I think it'll be hard to convince other states to carry through. But if Colorado doesn't back away, then one very clear way that we could get a national popular vote without amending the Constitution is if um, you know about uh, it's just going to take about 80 more votes to get us to the place where we have a majority um, in the national popular vote compact. Okay, so one last question um, on the, this particular subject before Victor raises a new subject. Um, you mentioned that the beneficiary of the current system are the swing states. Is that because presidential candidates focus all of their funding and all of their time in trying to persuade those voters because it's a winner take all situation. And so if they can just push it to 51% or 50 point whatever percent, they will then get all of those votes. And they know, for example, they don't have to campaign in my home state of Illinois because it's gonna be uh, a popular vote for a blue candidate, California, New York. There are certain ones will, nobody pays attention to us. We don't get the ads <laughs> like friends in Arizona see, for example. Um, so is that the reason why you're saying they are the beneficiaries? Absolutely. I mean, the work in this area has been extraordinary and quite compelling. And it doesn't, but it doesn't take a rocket science to work, a scientist to work it out. Like th imagine, you know, most people don't want to grow up to be a campaign manager for a presidential campaign, but just imagine for a second that you are, and you're a campaign manager for a Democratic candidate. Are you going to spend any time in California at all? The answer is no. Why would you? Uh, because you, you know you've won California. There's no reason to spend any time in California because you already have those votes. Would you spend any time in Utah? The answer is no because you know you've lost Utah. No matter how hard the candidate works, uh, a Democratic candidate is not gonna win in Utah. So that means the Democratic candidate knows that they're not gonna spend time in either a solid red state or a solid blue state. Mm -hmm. And then think about it if you were a campaign manager for a Republican candidate. The same argument applies. If you're a Republican candidate, you're not gonna spend any time in California because you know you're never gonna win California. And you're not gonna spend any time in Utah because you know you already have won Utah. Mm. So the point is regardless of the party, you're never gonna spend any time or any money in a state where you don't have a chance to change the result. And so that's why winner take all narrows the presidential campaign 
to those states where there's a fight about who can actually prevail in the state. And it's not even prevail in a majority sense. It's just prevail in a, in a plurality sense. So in 1992, when Bill Clinton was running uh, against George Bush and Ross Perot was a viable third party candidate, Bill Clinton won certain states with just 41% of the um, popular vote, but he got all of the electoral votes in that state because they had a winner-take-all system. And it's not just in the campaign. There have been important work that demonstrates that government spending and government regulation bends in favor of those states that are swing states. So many people might wonder, why do we have tariffs that protect steel industry, steel production? And the answer is because Pennsylvania, where the last remnants of steel production happened, is a swing state. Why do we have subsidies for ethanol production, which of course is a terrible greenhouse um, gas uh, problem? And the answer is because Iowa is a swing state. So the point is not just that in some abstract sense, people are not represented, it's that the government itself bends its policies to benefit this small section of America called swing state America, even though swing state America doesn't represent all of America. So I think to, to wrap this particular subject up, you've made a very compelling case about the unfairness of the current electoral college and identified either proportional voting instead of winner take all or the interstate compact as two possible solutions that don't require eliminating the electoral college and of course, obviously, the third option would be a constitutional amendment that recognizes how arcane and uh, anachronistic the Electoral College is, and let's just eliminate it. Uh, mm -hmm. So, Victor, you had yeah. a, another subject you wanted to raise with the professor. Yeah, so I mean, for me, I became particularly interested in reforming democracy after my junior research paper in um, Advanced Placement Language and Composition, which is a fun class. And um, in that paper, I dived into the issue of the Electoral College and Having written that paper, I came out realizing how ridiculous, like you said, it is to elect our president with such a system in 2020, which ultimately made me compelled to join Equal Citizens. And with my experience working with Equal Citizens and focusing on ranked choice voting here in Illinois, I recognize how slow it is to reform democracy sometimes because it is such a systemic and institutionalized problem. So given that the Electoral College is such a problem, relating it back to all generations, how do you think young people especially can effectively make progress on some of these daunting issues like reforming electoral college or democracy reform when everything is so systemic and institutionalized? Well, I think the biggest problem with the electoral college in particular is that it's an issue that seems to come up just once every four years and then disappear. Yeah. And even when it comes up in a very dramatic way, like in Bush versus Gore uh, or in the Clinton versus Trump election, um, it comes up in a way that um, surprises and angers people, but then tends to disappear. So what we've been trying to do is to find ways to keep the issue at the center of political debate mm -hmm. and to make it more and more salient so that we can begin to move, build a movement to demand that kind of reform. So on the day the Supreme Court announced its decision, we launched a project called fixthecollege.us. Oh. You can go to the web at fixthecollege, all one word, .us. And you can see a project that we've begun that will, that will bring in rolling groups of citizens at 100 a pop to deliberate about the question about what should the Electoral College become. You know, we'll give them the information, you know, sort of the information we've heard in this podcast, um, presented in a video form so everybody has an equal, easy access to that information. 
we'll give them a chance to deliberate in small groups and in big groups. And then we'll ask them, like, what are the reforms that make sense to you? And our view, based on our early research, is that by the end of this process, we're going to be able to demonstrate with tens of thousands of people participating in this process that overwhelmingly Americans are convinced about a particular solution that would actually achieve what I think is like 99% of what could be achieved if we had an electoral college, um, if we had just national popular vote. Mm -hmm. So what we think is that if we can begin to build the uh, ordinary understanding and recognition of what a real solution would be, then the politicians will follow. And the politicians will follow in a way that would actually give us the kind of reform that could substantially improve the representativeness of our uh, system for selecting the president. Yeah, yeah. And so this fix the college system, it's kind of like a convention of people coming together to ultimately devise the solution um, or like report to ultimately, you know, reform the electoral college. Would that be right? Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not completely unspecified. I mean, the mm -hmm. way it will be run, um, there's a system called deliberative polling that Jim mm -hmm. Fishkin at Stanford has been, uh, been making a prominent. It'll be a version of that. Uh, it has to be online given the COVID status yeah. that we continue to suffer. Um, but in that online process, what it will do is give people information and a chance to deliberate. It'll have a diverse range of people, mm -hmm. all politics, all political parties, all geographies, all demographics, men, women, uh, races, and the like. And the consequence of um, that diversity, we think, will be a very powerful statement about an agree a, a solution that most Americans can agree on. And if we can establish that through this crowdsourced-like way, then we'll have something to go back to the politicians and say, look, politicians, here's exactly something America could follow if you would only lead. And so please lead to bring about this kind of reform. Yeah. So I just want to say as someone who cried after the popular vote winner lost in two elections that I participated in. Um, and you've just mentioned the diversity of the voting population. I just want to mention that uh, this is the hundredth anniversary of women's suffrage. So when the constitution uh, started, there were no women voting and mm -hmm. neither were uh, African-Americans voting. So um, my, I've known for Jill's pins and today's pin, you probably can't see, but uh, we'll post it online, is an original suffragette pin wow. that says votes for women. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm hoping that um, we can all celebrate the voting for women this year, um, but, but that we can also get to the where you're saying which is that our votes should count equally right. and that yeah, I mean, national we, popular vote is somehow implemented whether it's through constitutional amendment the interstate compact or proportional voting which could be done without um, a constitutional amendment and that people will follow your you on twitter and what other social media platforms you're on but also equal citizen and the uh, voting dot uh, us that you've mentioned Right. I mean, the, you know, the suffragette movement is a perfect example, um, you know, complemented, obviously, by the extraordinary fight that African-Americans had to wage after the 13th Amendment, all the way after the 15th Amendment, all the way, which gave them the right to vote, ostensibly in 1868, I'm sorry, 1870, um, all the way up to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, when they finally achieved meaningful opportunities to vote equally. Mm -hmm. 
those are examples where the inequality is almost visceral. You know, it's hard to imagine being a woman in 1912 and not thinking to yourself, how am I treated equally as a citizen when I'm not even allowed to vote? Yeah. And it's hard to imagine being an African-American in 1962, realizing that if you live in the South, it's so incredibly hard to even register to vote and think, how am I an equal citizen in this republic if I can't equally vote? But what we're trying to do is to get people to, to leverage that sort of obvious inequality to one that it's hard to feel day to day. You know, yeah. people in Kentucky probably don't think to themselves, why don't we matter to the selection of the president? But they don't. People in Utah, the same thing. People in Illinois or New York, the same thing. The point is to get people to stand up and say, it's not just based on our identity that we ought to be equal within the system. It's based on our the fact that we're citizens, that we ought to be equal in this in the system. So equal citizens is trying to underline this fundamental political equality that somehow the American Republic has lost sight of. And in so many dimensions of our so-called democracy, we have defied that fundamental principle um, to create what is essentially an unrepresentative democracy. Yeah. So, I mean, in that fight for a more representative democracy, um, I wanted to touch upon kind of the polarizing moment that we find ourselves in right now before handing it back off to Jill. By reading this excerpt of this column by Harper's Magazine Letter, um, in which 140 authors, activists, and academics such as Malcolm Gladwell, um, J.K. Rowling came together to really stress the importance of open debate and dialogue, which is, I think, think something that Fix the College really um, underscores. And they write, the free exchange of information and ideas, the lifeblood of a liberal society is daily becoming more constricted. While we have come to expect this on the radical right, censoriousness is also spreading widely in our culture, an intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to, to, to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty. We uphold the value of robust and even caustic counter speech from all quarters, but it is now all too common to hear calls of um, to hear calls for swift and severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought, more troubling still, institutional leaders in a spirit of panicked damage control are delivering a hasty and disproportionate punishment instead of considered reforms. And then it kind of goes into examples of the punishments for professionals in this world when they kind of speak out. Um, and then it ends a paragraph with whatever the arguments around each particular incident, the result has been to steadily narrow the boundaries of what can be said without the threat of reprisal. We are already paying the price and greater risk aversion among writers, artists, and journalists who fear for their livelihoods if they depart from the consensus or even lack sufficient zeal and argument. So these are obviously polarized times on both sides, but most goingly with this outrageous mass debate with Floridans, you know, protesting not wearing masks. Um, the last time we talked in the Equal Citizens event, you gave such an amazing response as to why we're so divided right now. So for our audience out there, what conditions led to this moment of divisiveness and how does this affect where we are in terms of this fight for reform, um, more representation and um, to reform this democracy? Well, you know, you gotta follow the money. And I don't just mean campaign contributions or campaign finance about the interests, the money interests of the platforms which define our democracy. So if you look at both cable television and internet platforms, you know, fueled through um, online advertising like Facebook, um, it turns out that the politics of hate is much more profitable than the politics of understanding or compromise um, 
or coalition building. That, you know, if you're Facebook, the reason why Facebook's newsfeed fuels the spread of these outrageous, extreme fake news stories is that it pays. It is profitable for them. It's profitable for the people who are advertising. Um, you know, there's this really funny, in some sense, if it weren't tragic, story about some of these marketers that were taking advantage of the Facebook platform in 2016. And one of them is a very famous guy who sort of said, look, I decided I was going to create a platform that would put up fake news and, um, you know, try to attract people to click through to a website, these fake newspaper websites, just for the purpose of selling ads on those websites. And he did it. And it turned out that um, it wasn't successful for uh, leftist news. It was only successful for uh, fake news on the right. So he became a very virulent su uh, supplier of fake news on the right solely because he was trying to sell ads by pe to people who were, uh, that were clicking through on that. It wasn't that he was committed to Donald Trump. He was committed to making money. And it's the same thing for Facebook in general. You know, Facebook stands back and says that, oh, we want a vigorous political debate, blah, 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 and we don't want to censor anybody. But what they know is if they keep the system the way it is now, where basically people can uh, fuel this kind of craziness on both sides, um, they'll make more money than they do if they make the system into um, a more balanced or informative or less easily captured platform for advertising. Same thing in cable television. If you look at the ideological content of the major cable net networks, uh, Fox, CNN, and uh, MSNBC, until about 2000, they're basically the same. There's no sharp ideological difference between those networks, even though Fox in 96 was born with Roger Ailes's vision of turning it into a foundation organization platform for the Republican Party. But beginning in about 2001, you see the incredible separation between those three networks. And so each go into their own corner, Fox on the right, uh, MSNBC on the American left, and CNN trying to straddle in the middle. And the point is they've realized that the business model of playing to their political base, fueling this business model of hate, um, uh, the politics of hate, pays. And so they do it. And so we live in this environment where all of the major economic influences around information profit the crazier they make us, the less informed or the more uh, biased uh, they can make us. And so it's no surprise that we then see a public that doesn't even understand what the other side is saying. You know, I sometimes think it's not just that I disagree with Trump supporters. I don't even understand them. I don't understand what they're yeah. saying yeah. because it's so alien to the universe of information that I regularly consume. That problem is not a problem of like evil people conspiring. It's not a problem of like corrupt billionaires, like ch changing the nature of what people consume. It's a problem in the very uh, economy of influence of information in the modern digital and uh, broadcast uh, uh, television age. And that means it's a much harder problem to solve than just you know, electing a bunch of uh, decent people on either the right or the left to either political party. This has been a fascinating conversation. Um, I hope everyone has uh, taken notes on it and that they will then take action to bring about the kind of change that is apparently needed from this conversation. Um, 
I can't thank you enough. You've been a terrific guest. I hope you'll come back and talk to us more. Uh, We've enjoyed it, and I hope that our listeners have too. Um, So thank you very much, Victor. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you so much.